Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Kelsey Bowler, your host for today's show. We're going to break down the infiltration of LGBT ideology in children's TV shows and books, something that's becoming far more common, the Equality Act and how it could enable biological boys to overcome girls' sports, something, fun fact, that's already happening in some schools in Connecticut. We'll address actress-turned-activist Alyssa Milano's call for a hashtag sex strike in reaction to anti-abortion legislation in Georgia and Alabama. Finally, we'll crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. To break everything down with me today, I have some of my favorite ladies in studio with me, my colleague at the Heritage Foundation, Monica Burke. Monica, thanks so much for having me. And I also have my colleague at The Daily Signal, Lauren Evans. Thanks for having me, Kels. Before we get started, we want to ask our listeners to please consider supporting the show by leaving a review or rating on iTunes and encouraging other problematic women to subscribe. But if Patty's his sister, then... Who is Mr. Ratburn marrying? (laughs) So you might be wondering what that was. It was a clip from the 22nd season premiere of the animated children's series Arthur on PBS. In this episode, Mr. Ratburn, who is Arthur's beloved teacher, came out as gay and got married. Although the word gay was never actually mentioned in any of the scenes, Mr. Ratburn and Patrick, his partner, are seen strolling arm in arm down the aisle to music and celebrating afterwards with dancing and cake. The Knot.com posted a picture of the animated wedding on Instagram, to which one user commented, OMG, I always suspected it. Congratulations, Mr. Ratburn. I'm so happy for a fictional character right now. So my question for you ladies today is, on one hand, you could argue this was done in one of the least harmful ways possible in that the word gay was never even mentioned and children will likely come across this lifestyle at one point in their childhood if they haven't already. On the other hand, sexual identities and gay marriage are very complicated concepts that many parents believe they should have the right to introduce to their children for themselves on their own accord. Uh, So when they turned on Arthur, many of them probably didn't expect to uh, have this scene appear in front of their children if they even were watching the show with their children themselves. Monica, actually, you have a stack of children's books in your office that uh, addresses these types of issues, transgender ideology being infiltrated in um, children's books. I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. But first, I want to ask whether or not you found this Arthur episode problematic. So I think you set up the question a really great way, Kelsey, which is that, yeah, children are probably going to encounter different lifestyles over the course of their lifetime. And Arthur is very much a show that sort of teaches you how to, you know, gracefully become an adult and a good citizen. Um, I remember when I was a kid, uh, Arthur was the only reason that I knew what to do when I ended up on the wrong bus. My bus driver (laughs) forgot about me the same way that Arthur fell asleep on the bus. And I was like, it's just like the TV show. I know what to do. So what did you do? Um, So it was actually hilarious because the bus driver, I was such a quiet student that the bus driver... For, just forgot to drop me off. He didn't realize I was there. And so I just kind of like sat quietly in my seat until he pulled into like the bus lot. And I was like, if I don't 
say anything. I guess I'm just going to sleep here tonight. And I'm like, Arthur found the responsible adult. I need to find the responsible adult. So I like sort of, I raised my hand like I was in class. and I was like, excuse me, Bob. Of course, his name was Bob. And he's like, oh my gosh. (laughs) And I remember I got to school that day and I I told my teacher that's why I was late and she didn't believe me. (laughs) That's amazing. Okay, we like Arthur for that reason. Yeah, so we like Arthur for that purpose. And I think it just goes to show like, this is a show that, deals with you know a lot of questions about what kids ought to do in various scenarios um but at the same time i think the the broader context is that this is a very sensitive controversial issue there's not nationwide consensus on gay marriage and i think that parents should be free to talk to their children when they think it's appropriate about these things And so I don't think this episode happened in a vacuum. I think a lot of parents are going to feel like it preempted a conversation that perhaps their child wasn't ready to have. Um, Kids, depending on how old they are, where they grow up, what their family life is like, have various ideas about about romance and sex. And sometimes if you introduce it too young, it can be confusing or even scary. So I I do think that this – I first of all, imagine that there was presumably – an agenda attached to creating this episode, but also parents are the ones who are going to know best whether or not their kids are even ready to talk about it. Yeah, you're 100% right. This isn't Game of Thrones. This isn't Grey's Anatomy. This wasn't moving some plot point and was necessary. Every episode of Arthur is kind of a different topic. And so they purposely put this in to have kids encounter this for the first time. Arthur has such a great platform, the, the show Arthur, to teach children. He taught you about riding the bus. He can teach math. He can teach us to be kind to our friends. So the fact that they decided to do this, especially on the first episode of this new season, and it actually isn't the first time that they've conquered this gay marriage issue. In 2005, there was a spinoff featuring Arthur's best friend, Buster, and Buster had a friend who had two moms. And so people are kind of comparing those two things. And I think it's different. I agree with you, Monica, that parents should have the right to be able to talk with their children about these issues. But it's different when you frame it in a way that's, oh, you might have a friend who has two moms. Just treat them like a normal family. And you should be celebrating gay marriages. Like, it just doesn't seem like it's the same thing. I imagine if we had someone in the room from, you know, the liberal perspective right now, they would say this was totally harmless. Kind of what I mentioned in the beginning, uh, you know, the children could have a gay teacher. They may already be exposed to it. What's the harm? This is just the reality of life. Um, but I think, you know, the the problem is that in a perfect world, parents would not be just plopping their children in front of TV screens and letting them watch shows. Um, They'd be sitting with them and watching and monitoring and making sure each of those shows aligns with their values. And a lot of parents, you know, Arthur's been on PBS for 22 years, so a lot of parents probably felt comfortable with this show. And, And I think it's like a breach of trust between PBS, Arthur producers, and parents who might want the opportunity to introduce this topic on their own accord. And that's what I think is is unfortunate, that it's becoming more and more difficult for families of faith or conservative families uh, to find programming and, and, and books and so forth that are infiltrating their children with an ideology or religious perspective that they disagree with. And I know, Monica, you can speak much more deeply to this because as we discovered... 
Monica is hoarding some books in her office, some children's <laughs> books uh, that that are promoting the transgender ideology. So, Monica, I'm going to give you a chance to explain yourself. I'm not moonlighting as a librarian. <laughs> as fun as that sounds, a lot of LGBT activist groups have actually developed curriculums for schools, whether that be related to non-sexual topics like history, math, literature, but also sex education and anti-bullying programs. Basically, they want teachers to be the ones facilitating the conversation about sex and gender identity. And of course, they have very definitive ideas about what ought to be taught in that regard. So they come up with recommended questions for teachers to ask, but also recommended texts to share in the classroom. So I've been reading a number of these books just to see what the other side is saying. How are they presenting the topic? What do they think is age appropriate for fourth graders versus kindergartners? And honestly, a lot of what I've found, I'd say that the books run along a spectrum. So you have some books that I think conservatives, you know, conservative parents who have traditional ideas about marriage or believe that sex is a biological reality um, might actually share with their children in a certain context. So like I said, oftentimes these texts are introduced within the context of anti-bullying programs. So one of the books I read was like My Princess Boy. And it was written by a mom who I believe it's actually about her son. But her son is, you know, a couple years old and is dressing up in girls dress up clothes. And the point of the story is like, I still love my son, my husband. And I still love our child. And, you know, if if you are the kid at school who, you know, happened to dress up as the opposite sex in the context of playing pretend and start getting picked on for it. I mean, this book could be something, you know, you read with your parents um, that actually brings a lot of peace of mind about this experience and can be presented. It can be presented in a variety of contexts, but I'd say that that's pretty, like, it wasn't context nece- is key. It wasn't necessarily saying this boy who likes dressing yes. up as a girl is identifying as a girl and going down that rabbit hole. It's just saying this boy likes playing dress up and that's okay and we should love him anyways for Exactly. It. And, and I think that there's, you know, do I want, HRC or another LGBT rights group to be bringing it into my school and dictating how, you know, kids are talking about it. That's a separate question. But then there there are other books that I think are more dramatic and are very explicit and straightforward about transgender ideology, which is can be pretty jarring, which is, you know, a boy who thinks he's a girl is a girl. So one of the books that I read, it's a novel, the main character is in fourth grade, and it's called George. I'm pretty sure that it was the book that in 2018 was like most requested at libraries to be censored. And so I have the book here, and I actually bookmarked a page so that you have a very cute cover. Yeah, so it's the cover <laughs> is like George is in rainbow letters. It has like a little drawing of like a little boy's face. And, and you it, know, it's, it's a chapter book. It's for yeah. maybe a third or fourth grader. Yeah. So I'd say probably intended audience. There were like different recommendations online. Uh, the main characters in fourth grade, but some people rated it as being for even younger audiences than that age. So you open it up. It's like very colorful illustrations inside. Um, I think the dedication is very interesting because it's dedicated to you for when you felt different, which all of us have experienced at some point in our childhoods. I pulled this part of the text because I think it just goes to show you like how drastic this is. George, the main character, is referred to with female pronouns throughout the book. And sort of the theme is George is secretly a girl. And George is musing on this time that George had seen a transgender woman on television and they had been talking about, quote unquote, the surgery. 
So this is what the book says. George knew it could be done. A boy could become a girl. She had since read on the internet that you could take girl hormones that would change your body, and you could get a bunch of different surgeries if you wanted them and had the money. This was called transitioning. You could even start before you were 18 with pills called androgen blockers that stopped the boy hormones already inside you from turning your body into a man's. But for that, you needed your parents' permission. And so a lot of the tension throughout the book is like, George wants... This is a fourth grader? Everyone to understand. This is a fourth grader. And so this is very interesting because we're seeing more and more young people are identifying as transgender. And some of that, too, is just the access that they have to the Internet. There's this phenomenon called rapid onset gender dysphoria, and the research is pretty new. But they've definitely found that it'll be entire peer groups that will start thinking that they are actually transgender, typically after binge-watching videos or going on Tumblr. So the Internet is telling kids younger and younger, it is promising them that all of this confusion that you feel about your body will go away if you just go on these drugs and get the surgery. And experience tells us that it's not that simple. Um, big picture questions aside about you know the, meta- the metaphysical question of can a man be a woman or become a woman, you take Jazz Jennings. So another book that I read is called I Am Jazz, and it was written by Jazz Jennings about their story of transitioning. And so Jazz's story is not like a happy-go-lucky tale of, you know, I Jazz took the puberty-blocking drugs and did it by the textbook in terms of what activists are proposing. And actually, this is going to get like a little bit gruesome, but I'll just go ahead and go there because people need to know the truth. Um So Jazz never fully underwent puberty as a boy. So when it came time uh, to do what's called a vaginoplasty surgery, where you recreate female genitalia, there actually wasn't enough tissue because the male genitalia had never fully developed. And so they had to use internal organ tissue. There were complications. It got really messy, incredibly painful. And that is the future that the main character of this book would have to look forward to. But the book ends on this cheerful note of, you know, George becomes Melissa, and this is the first good day out of many more to come. And I I don't think that's I don't think that's fair to children. And I don't think it's fair to parents that activist groups want to have that conversation and entirely cut parents out of the equation and only tell them one side of the story, not tell them the medical risks, the emotional risks, and not ask big questions that most Americans disagree on about whether it be the meaning of marriage, which we kind of talked about with the Arthur episode, but also the meaning of sex. And these children's books and these children's stories really stick with you. As we've been talking about in the office, and I'm sure everybody's been talking about it on Twitter, the even just the Arthur theme song, we're going to play you a short clip of it. All of us can still say that theme song. Or we haven't watched the show in what? 15 years, what we're teaching our children in this point of their life is important. And the fact that they just glossed over him going online to research these puberty blockers, that's not okay. 10-year-olds should not be using Google unsupervised. And yeah, you're right, Monica. They just, they want only one narrative to be told to our children. And that's why it's important that we are watching and making sure that our kids are learning the right things at the right time from the right people. Right. And I think that's why it's becoming so difficult to 
um, parent in in accordance to your own values these days because they are being infiltrated from so many different directions in, as we talked about with the Arthur example, in seemingly harmless ways, um, seemingly respectful ways. Um, but, you know, we all, you know, I imagine every parent wants to have these conversations with their ch- uh, children just on their own accord. And it just seems more and more difficult for parents to do that these days. So to all the parents listening, I do not envy you. And I sadly have some bad news because when we come back from this break, we're going to be talking about legislation that is being considered in Congress that could make this entire situation much, much worse. Stay tuned. Looking for a short morning podcast to give you the news of the day without liberal bias? The Daily Signal podcast is a rundown of the top stories you need to know that the mainstream media is probably ignoring. This week, House Democrats are planning a vote on the Equality Act, a bill that would add sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes under federal civil rights law. By the time you're maybe listening to this podcast, it's possible that this bill has already passed in the Democrat-controlled House. Uh, But with Republicans controlling the Senate and the White House, it still faces an uphill battle. That said, some Republicans are signaling there's a chance they might get behind it. And no matter what, this legislation is likely going to be a part of the conversation for years to come. Monica, as someone who has spent a lot of time looking at this bill um, and writing about it for the Daily Signal and other outlets, can you explain what exactly it would do? Yes, of course. So it's always difficult to know where to begin with the Equality Act because it's so broad and sweeping and would implicate so many areas of American life. Maybe we should start with the name, the Equality Act. (laughs) Who couldn't be for the Equality Act? Exactly. (laughs) And it just goes to show uh, messaging goes a long way. Uh, So the Equality Act really promotes inequality because ultimately it prioritizes one side of the debate over the other and actually silences the other side of the debate. So as you mentioned, Kelsey, it would elevate sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was the bill that basically addressed racism in the United States after we had Jim Crow laws. It was very necessary, very important. But the problem with sexual orientation and gender identity, I'd say, there's is twofold. So the first is the problems with the categories themselves. So unlike race, which is an objective immutable category, sexual orientation and gender identity are both fluid, subjective, self-identified, which makes it very difficult to determine what constitutes discrimination on that basis. So already there, you sort of have problems baked in. Um, but the second problem is comes down to how would this law actually be used? And something like, I believe it's 24 states and hundreds of cities and localities have passed local versions of these policies. And the way that they're being used on the local level is to punish people for their beliefs, uh, to try to force them to say things against what they believe. Sometimes it costs people their business or their job. Uh, There's one case where it actually costs parents custody over their daughter because they didn't want to give her puberty blocking drugs to transition to being Male, And so the stakes are really high. The way the bills are being used is not so much to prevent discrimination and protect people, but actually to attack people when they don't agree with this new gender ideology. So 
I like I said, I could talk at length about the various areas of American life that would be affected here. But I think the most important ones to note, since we were talking about parents earlier, the first is that this bill would politicize medicine. So not only does this bill add those categories to the Civil Rights Act, it actually expands what qualifies as public accommodations. And that expansion includes places that offer health care, which means that, for example, a Catholic hospital that declines to do sex reassignment surgeries would could be forced to offer those procedures. The doctors who work there could be forced to provide them, even if it's it might not even be a moral or religious judgment. They, it might be against their best medical judgment. The risk is not worth it in this case. Um, they could be charged with discrimination if they don't perform those procedures. And that has a trickle down effect when it comes to the decisions that parents are able to make for their children. It means that fewer and fewer pediatricians will offer the kinds of care that don't involve hormonal and surgical interventions. It means that you won't have access to talk therapy where maybe your kid just talks about, you know, well, tell us why you're feeling so uncomfortable with the fact that you have a male or a female body. Um, that that wait and see approach actually can do a lot of good. It's the statistics are somewhere between 80 to 95 percent of children who struggle with their to feel comfortable in their own bodies, ultimately after going through puberty, come to identify with their bodies as is. So that's, I think, one of the biggest red flags with this bill. But it's not the only one, unfortunately. Other ones worth noting, since this is problematic women, um, this would effectively mean the end of women's only spaces. So if someone can access women's only facilities, whether that be the restroom or the locker room or your child is on a field trip and they're sharing a hotel room, this would basically spell the end of women's spaces. Biological males, all they would have to do is claim to be a woman. They can have access to those facilities and spaces. And when they claim it doesn't mean they have to go to a doctor or a psychiatrist. They literally just have to say, I'm a man. Exactly. I'm, I'm a woman. Exactly. So it's it's based on self-identification. And that makes it really difficult for both law enforcement and women who are in positions where they think that they might have actually been the victims of sexual misconduct, it makes them less likely to deal with the problem at hand because they don't want to come across as discriminating against someone or assuming their gender identity. Uh, But it also makes it more difficult to prove that there was negative intent there. So it's the concern here is not that transgender individuals are going to use women's only facilities, even though I think there, there is a concern, especially for women's privacy in those scenarios. But the real concern is the predators who could take advantage of these policies. And then another area that we can't underestimate is women's only sports. I played against boys in gym class, and they were a lot better at dodgeball than I was. <laughs> and I think we all know from experience that men tend to be stronger than women, tend to have more athletic ability than women. Um, it's very rare that there are sports where women have the advantage. And so if men can identify as women and compete in women's only sports, effectively women's accomplishments are entirely diminished. Women will be erased from their own events. And it makes it they won't just lose titles. They could potentially lose scholarships if this is high school to college sports. Um, they could lose records. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> well, speaking of sports... This is already happening. So a couple weeks ago, I traveled to my home state of Connecticut 
uh, to find out firsthand how the types of policies that you're talking about are already impacting girls in sports. I interviewed a 16-year-old junior named Selena Soul, a very sweet girl, track star from Glastonbury, who actually missed qualifying for the 55-meter race in a big competition called the New England Regionals by two spots. So those two spots, she missed it uh, by, she told me, were taken by two biological boys who were identifying as girls. Uh, Here's a clip of Selena explaining how this is affecting her ability to compete. It can be difficult showcasing my talents to coaches from around the country as they only look at the results online. They see the first and or second place girl so far ahead of the rest of the girls and they're going to reach out to and try to recruit those two top girls versus everyone else. I think it's gotten to the point where some girls are starting to stray away from those events and are hoping to go to other events so then they actually have a fair chance of winning. And in my case, I have my field event, long jump. That was my safe haven, if you want to call it, where the results were fair no matter what because it was girls competing against girls. But now, unfortunately, one of those athletes has started to compete in long jump. So now none of my events are safe. It's frustrating when you know that you run your best and no matter what, your best is never going to be enough. A lot of times conservatives get accused of fear-mongering when it comes to issues like the Equality Act or how transgender individuals will impact uh, the rest of individuals in society. And I would say this is a pretty clear example that this isn't fear-mongering. It is actually happening. Um, One of these uh, transgender students who placed first or second in this competition actually just transitioned from being a boy the year before. And um, as a biological boy, uh, that student was very mediocre in the track competitions. And then the next year, as soon as that boy started competing in the girls' competitions, um, he was blowing them away and uh, winning all these accolades, breaking records. Um, And I think you raise an important point that, um, you know, this isn't just about records being broken and so forth. It, it also can affect uh, students' ability to get into colleges. Selena someone who wants to run track in college, and she's missing out on the opportunity to be racing in person in, in front of college coaches who show up at these big competitions. Um, so it's interesting, though, watching how the impact of this is playing out in sports, because I know different things are happening at the Olympic level where they are paying attention to hormone levels. Um, You know, it's it's I feel like this is just the start. Yeah, it's only the tip of the iceberg. Um, What's so interesting, too, is you mentioned hormones. And I think the Olympics have been contemplating like they're, they're dealing with this question of what to do about hormone levels and what, you know, means that you can compete in the male versus the female category. And it all you end up sending ultimately arbitrary goalposts that can be moved at any given moment. And what's so fascinating is from the time that we're very, very small, I mean, men's and women's bodies develop differently from the time that they're very young in terms of bone structure, muscles, et cetera. So I think just fixating on on one level, um, be it hormone levels or just one factor, it's it's 
ultimately about the whole person. And at the end of the day, men and women are not interchangeable. And so if you have a policy like the Equality Act that comes in and effectively says that none of that matters, the only thing that matters is how you identify, it's much more likely that we will effectively have male sports and co-ed sports because it's so much easier for men given all of the changes that their bodies undergo from a very young age, um, it's much more likely that they're going to blow women's competitions out of the water. Yeah, such a big part of running is how much body fat you have. Mm Because the skinner you are, the faster you're able to run because you're not carrying as much. Women carry more body fat. And if they don't, it's bad for them because women need the extra body fat because they have so many so many different internal organs. Mm-hmm. Their men's bones are bigger. So when you're running, you have more of an angle and their feet are bigger. I mean, there's just so many things. So when you just pick out, okay, they've taken enough hormones. Now they're a woman. That's not true. They can't change their entire body. What are they going to do? Get plastic surgery everywhere? Get bone plasty? It's it's crazy. And Lauren, one thing I wanted to ask you about is um, when I was in Connecticut, I found um, there are actually more girls than just Selena who ran track and wanted to speak out about this situation and explain why they think it's extremely unfair. Uh, But they were too scared to go on camera and use their names uh, because they feared they would be blacklisted from colleges. If an administrator or a track coach uh, hears their perspective, uh, they fear being called a bigot, transphobic, so forth. You know, everything that they're, they're being called these days. So we did interview them. Um, But we changed their voices, altered their voices, and did not show their faces or use their names. Here's a quick clip uh, from some other girls speaking out. Watching them run was just heartbreaking. I mean, you almost don't even want to watch, but how can you not? You can clearly see these two biological guys just absolutely crushing it. And it almost brings you to tears. We've competed head-to-head with these people many times, and... It hurts to see them win when you know that we probably should have won. There's really nothing else you can do except, you know, get super frustrated and roll your eyes because it's really hard to even come out and talk in public just because of the way with the far left and how immediately you'll just be shut down. We are totally accepting of who they are and who they want to be. We just have an issue when it comes to sports. So they clearly don't sound like chipmunks in real life. That was voice (laughs) editing. But hearing them, I'm frustrated for them that whether or not you agree with them, they can't speak out. Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking to listen. These girls, all they want to do is run track. And I think the reason why they're so afraid to speak out is because those who are proponents of the Equality Act and those who are pushing this transgender identity, their whole everything that they're made of is this transgender identity, they, you know, and so whenever you say anything negative about the Equality Act or whenever you say anything negative about maybe men shouldn't be playing sports with women, they take it as a personal attack. So we can't have these conversations. And I'm glad the girl said is like, we support you. If you want to be a woman, that's fine. You just can't run a race against me. But yeah, it's just scary that these girls feel like they can't even talk about it. And I also want to go back to something else, Monica, you said at the very beginning of the segment about the Equality Act 
forcing doctors to give puberty blockers and transition surgeries to children. So if you're an 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old and you decide you're transgender, I mean, that's scary to think about, but we are sterilizing our children. We are allowing children at 9 years old to say, I am a boy, I am a girl, and they will never be able to have children. This is a lifetime decision. This isn't, okay, I'm going to wear boys' clothes. Like This is really scary to think about. I know this is a hot topic, but I wasn't expecting the reaction that we got from producing this video and writing the story that went along with it. You can find both of those on thedailysignal.com to learn more. You can also find them on YouTube and Facebook and share them. Um, and, you know, Monica is constantly writing about the Equality Act. So subscribe to The Daily Signal and you will get updated. We're going to move on to a different topic It is time to talk about Alyssa Milano's sex strike. Alyssa Milano is an actor and activist who helped the Me Too movement go viral. She lives in L.A., works in Georgia from time to time, and is now calling for a hashtag sex strike to protest Georgia's heartbeat bill, which was signed into law by Governor Brian Kemp. Uh, and and bans most abortions as early as six, six weeks into pregnancy. Writing on CNN, Milano explained what a sex strike is. Quote, a sex strike is a way to target straight cisgender men so they feel the physical consequences of our reproductive rights being systematically eliminated. This form of protest has the potential to raise the issue far beyond the usual groups engaged in debates about reproductive health. It's a way to ignite conversation and help everyone understand the gravity of this situation and the immediate need for swift action. So, guys, is it? Where to begin? (laughs) (laughs) I just think this entire approach that she has towards sex just strikes me as, like, I mean, really sad. It begs the question of, you know, what is sex for? What does it express? And I, I don't like the idea, you know, of something that is supposed to be a gesture of love being politicized and weaponized. Yeah, and showing that women's value is is in whether or not they're going to have sex with you. Yeah, I just think there's, and and we know, I thought the, ha- so the hashtag Me Too movement, one of the great things that came out of it was, A, we had, a, we had an honest conversation about harassment, but also a lot of people started questioning whether hookup culture actually was good for women and showed how you know, all these kinds of subtle pressures that women can face to, like, sexualize themselves or define themselves in terms of how sexually desirable they are and how men can take advantage of that and make them feel horrible about themselves. And I think that a hashtag sex strike does not – it plays into this broader problem we have of, you know, what is sex for – And what does it mean? And I think this just brings us even farther away from it being something that is a gesture of love that happens in a context with someone that you love and you trust and you care about. And it's a way of showing them how much you care. Like it takes all of the romance out of it and all of the meaning out of it. And frankly, I think a sex strike is kind of boring. It's just it's just another political protest, you know. And I'm surprised, too, that she's still pushing this because. The right obviously is critiquing it like Monica just did that you're reducing women down to to just sex objects. But then the left is like, she's not woke enough. Like, well, you're you're only punishing cisgender men. Yeah. Like you should exactly. be still having sex with transgender men. You know, it says nothing about women. So it's just like 2019. As soon as you 
don't think things can get crazier, they get crazier. Yeah. Yeah. And I can't help but find such an irony in the idea of a sex strike coming from a self-proclaimed feminist because um, in second wave feminism, you know, the se- the sexual revolution, sex is what women fought for, uh, the ability to have sex whenever and with whomever they wanted. And now they are reducing that to a bargaining chip. I mean, this is all I mean, it all does add up when you think about it, because they have cheapened the concept of, of sex and, and reduced it um, to really mean very little. And I think sadly has 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 had the result of reducing women's bodies and and having men not respect us and respect us and respect our bodies in a way that they used to in the past. Um, but you know, to get more into the weeds of why she actually started the sex strike, it surrounds um, Georgia's heartbeat bill and also a similar similar bill that was just passed by the legislature in Alabama. On Tuesday night, um, this bill would also ban abortions, um, most abortions after six weeks. Uh, Critics of this legislation, which, again, the governor in Alabama has not yet signed as of the recording of this podcast, are calling it the most restrictive bill in the country, saying it would punish abortion doctors with life in prison if they perform an abortion after this point. Planned Parenthood and other pro-abortion organizations have obviously already promised to sue. Um, But Monica, I want to ask, you know, what you think of the dynamics playing out in our country right now where you have states like New York, which are passing um, very extreme pieces of legislation where you can um, that enable women to get abortions basically up until the point the baby is physically coming out of her body and then seeing what's happening um, down in Georgia and Alabama. So I think all of the various laws that have we've seen on the state level in the past couple of months just go to show that the fight over Roe is far from over. And I think that abortion advocates were kind of hoping after Roe versus Wade was decided, like, this is a Supreme Court case, nail is in the coffin, we're done, we're moving on. And we've seen the exact opposite, which is the pro-life movement continues to fight back, um, does so on a variety of fronts in the courts, in the laws, in the culture. Uh, We see that the pro-life movement is skewing younger and younger. Millennials tend to be very pro-life. And it's not going anywhere. And I I think these laws are a testament to that, that people want to have the conversation, that the nail is not in the coffin. The conversation is far from over. And we're asking tough questions about what happens in an abortion. And I, I also want to point out, I think that the left's narrative that this is just a question of women's rights. I think the presumption, first of all, to just say that you're speaking for all women is unbelievably prideful. They definitely don't speak for me. But the majority of Americans are still operating on rhetoric from, you know, a decade ago of safe, legal and rare. And the polling reflects that even people who identify as pro-choice feel very conflicted about abortion. Um, After some of these more drastic bills were passed in, in New York and we had we had the the situation going on in Virginia. I had a pro-choice friend text me and she's like, what is going on? This is insane. I, I don't agree with this. So I think people – the conversation is far from over. The fight is far from over. And also I think the left is dead wrong in terms of what the American people think. And they're dead wrong in terms of where the next generation is going, which I think is, is towards the life movement. 
Absolutely. And the polls back you up on that. I was just looking at them earlier today. Uh, I'll be... I'll be fascinated to watch the sex strike continue uh, because I, I can't imagine Alyssa Milano is married and she's claiming we need the sex strike until these laws are overturned. And I don't know how much she knows about um, how 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 much time and work it takes <laughs> to uh, change laws in different states, but it might be a while. So maybe let's all say a little prayer for uh for her husband. And then <laughs> in the meantime, um, I do want to bring up another actress, Jamila Jamil from The Good Place, also decided to jump into the abortion conversation on Twitter, um, telling us about her own abortion that she got, calling it a great decision for both her and the baby. Very interesting. She said, quote, I had an abortion when I was young and it was the best decision I've ever made. Both for me and for the baby, I didn't want. P.S. This isn't any diss at all to foster homes. I'm in awe of people who take in children in need of a family and a home. But if Georgia becomes inundated with children who are unwanted or unable to be cared for, it will be hard to find great fostering for them all. So which one of you wants to take on this one? (laughs) Well, it's just crazy. We went from safe, legal, and rare to shout your abortion. And now not only shouting your abortion is needed, you need to affirm their decision. And say it was good for the baby. For the baby. Which who is, is yeah, illogical. It's a tragedy. She terminated a life in her body. And she now wants to brag. I don't know what she's trying to get out of this tweet. Is she bragging about it? Is she just trying to back up Alyssa Milano? But it's really sad. And I, I it just shows this discourse of, It'll never be enough. You know, it's like the book of you give a mouse a cookie. Um, even though maybe there's a transgender version now. You give a mouse a <laughs> dress. <might> be. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, there, there's, no, there's no end to this. It, they are always going to push and they want more and more. And ne- next, maybe it's a, you. Next, maybe it's not even that you affirm their decision that they want more people to have abortions. It's just it's scary to think about where this is going to go. I think a lot of that rhetoric, too, is... I don't even know how to describe it. It's sometimes like wishful thinking. Um, You know, would that this wasn't a complicated decision or a painful decision. What your body goes through. I mean, if we want to even just take a step away from the moral question and just talk about what a woman goes through when she undergoes an abortion and then start talking about late term abortions. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. It's hard on a woman's body. It has long-term health consequences. It can affect her fertility down the road. Sorry, but I just have to say, if you're interested in that, go see Unplanned, another plug. But we are big fans of that movie here. Exactly. I think that that movie gets at the reality of what the abortion industry is and what an abortion procedure is. And, you know, I don't want to put words in Jamila Jamil's mouth um, because... I can't imagine what it would be like to process that experience. Um, and I'm, I don't want to psychoanalyze her either. But I think that for the media to portray this as empowering or easy or simple or a quick fix, that is not the lived experience of most women. Um, I also thought it was interesting that she raised the issue of foster homes. I noticed this happens a lot when we talk about abortion. And what I think is so interesting, so on the one side, the left tends to critique anyone who is pro-life. And, you know, as soon as you, you know, state that you're pro-life, they're like, well, 
have you adopted? Are you fostering right now? And actually, right. a lot of the pro-life people I know, yeah. I know so many adoptive parents and adopted siblings. So I, I think that objection is is problematic from the start. But also, at the same time, the left has been litigating and working on the state level through laws to actually close faith-based foster care providers. And the Equality Act would actually actually has the power to drive all of those faith-based foster providers that strive to place children in homes with both a mom and a dad because they believe that's what's best for children um, to sh- put all those places out of business. And then it means we have even fewer resources, even fewer caseworkers, even fewer people dedicated to finding these kids' homes. So I agree with her insofar as we want there to be more foster homes. However, I completely disagree, at least with the political movement that she identifies with, with their strategy, because the numbers just don't work out. Um, so, yeah, I but at the end of the day, I think all of all of this is just the shout your abortion movement, I think, is sad. And also, I just to make a side note, since it was just Mother's Day, is also incredibly painful to any woman who's experienced a miscarriage. And to oversimplify this conversation would be a mistake and not true to women's lived experiences. Well, and I think it's also disappointing. Monica, you and I were talking about this. If you do not know who Jamila Jamil is, she's from the popular show The Good Place. And you can't find an escape. Like, The Good Place is such a good show. But it re- kind of ruins it when, you know, this woman is celebrating her abortion. To bring it full circle to, like, the Arthur conversation <laughs> we had. When we over-politicize culture, it stops being art or culture and it starts becoming propaganda. And if everything we encounter becomes politicized. It alienates people who might not agree with that position, but also I think it takes a lot of, you know, the fun and creativity and just like the beauty of storytelling out of it when everything has to be a political statement. So I think you're right. Absolutely. Well, that almost wraps up our show for today. But first, we have to crown our problematic woman of the week. This one you do not want to miss. We'll be right back. Do conversations about the Supreme Court leave you scratching your head? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast breaking down the cases, personalities, and gossip at the Supreme Court. All right, we're back, and it is our favorite time of the week. Time to crown our problematic woman of the week. This week, the honor goes to the one and only Alyssa Milano (laughs) for being such a bold promoter of abstinence. We wanted to thank her for that. Thank you. <laughs> we see you. <laughs> we affirm you. Yeah, we, we didn't. We purposely avoided uh, the the ridiculousness of the hashtag sex strike uh, on this note that there is such an irony here that she is p- literally promoting the very thing that a lot of pro-lifers um, advocate for to prevent unwanted pregnancies. Um, so it's a little backwards, but we really do appreciate all her hard work this week on that. <laughs> it's yeah it's such a self-owned you know we they're, they're admitting that hey if you don't want to have an abortion don't have sex like it's it's not a novel concept and so I'm, I'm glad that she's realizing that and she's pushing it but i like you said kelsey her poor husband i imagine her husband agrees with her and so now she's punishing him it just seems like a backwards thing but you know what if if there's some good that comes out of it good <laughs> All right. Well, that's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. I'd like to thank Lauren and Monica for joining me today. Could you please let our listeners know how to follow your work on social media? Yes. So my handle on Twitter is at Monica G. Burke. And my Twitter handle is at Lauren Eliz Evans. 
Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives really need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate you leaving a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. (laughs) Thanks for finishing. (laughs) This podcast was created by The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans. Edited by Michael Gooden and Thalia Rampersad. Special thanks to The Daily Signal's editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our friend, Bree Payton.